You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. So my name is Jesse, and I am very honored and humbled to be part of the teaching team here at the Mission. And the title for today's message is called Child of God, the Christian Self, and Our New Identity in Christ. So let's go ahead and read the Word of God in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. And the Word of God says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, a slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And the promise of Abraham, my dear, my dear brothers and sisters, is righteousness. This is the promise to Abraham, that he was going to be the father of many nations, because those who, by faith, believe in the power of the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have become children of Abraham. And so we are the promise of Abraham. And the promise of Abraham is that he was going to be the father of many nations. And God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham through us and through the work of Jesus at the cross. Galatians 4, 4, 7 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. And now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to be gathered here this morning as a community, as Gracia pray this morning, Father. We ask you in the name of Jesus that you remove any pride from our hearts and that you give us your humility that comes from heaven, Lord. May the Spirit of God speak to our minds and may your word pierce our hearts as a double-edged sword with your word, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as previously mentioned, the title for today's message is Child of God, the Christian self and our new identity in Christ. So the purpose of this teaching is to share with you what I have come to understand as the Christian self, what it means to be Christian, what it means to be born again, what it means to be a child of God, and what that looks like here on earth. Because sometimes I think that we may have a better picture of what a child of God looks in heaven than what it looks down here on earth. And, and the study for today is based on Romans 1 through chapter, through chapter 8. Also, there is a case to be made that all human beings are children of God. And there is some truth to that. That is true to some extent. All human beings are children of God because all human beings 
have the image of God in us. Right? But for the purpose of this message, I am going to be defining children or child of God as those believers who have come to believe in the, uh, in the work of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And so that's, that's going to be the definition for a child of God for today's, for today's teaching. Also, I, I have some disclosures to make. Some of the concepts that I will be talking today uh, um, about may sound like doctrine, um, but it is not my intention to teach doctrine. I am no theologian. Um, I am no exeget. I, I'm just a humble servant. And the concepts of what it means to be a child of God comes from my own understanding and my own experience and my own walk with God for me being so stubborn and asking God what it means to be a child of God. For many, many years, I asked him. I asked him this. And so to, I would like to share with you that walk with God that I had in my own experience in defining what child of God means. But before we turn to what a child of God means, let's try to define what a human, what to be a human really is, right? So as I mentioned, for many years, I have asked God to show me what it also means to be human. What is at the core of the human condition? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why, why is there so much evil? Why do we suffer? Why do we get sick? Why do we get anxious, depressed? Um, but at the same time, why are human beings so capable of doing good, but at the same time so capable of doing evil? What's at the core? What's at the essence? What is the identity of, of a human? And so let's read Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. It says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves of the fear of dying. And we also know that the Son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the, de the descendants of Abraham. And therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every aspect like us, like a human being, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and, and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. And, and other versions also says, because he was tempted in every single way as us, he is help us also, he can help us in our temptation. And this lays at the core of what a human being really means. Because Jesus, being son himself, he didn't think of himself as, as God, but he obeyed the Father. He took his crown, set it aside on his throne, and he took the, the humble form of a human being born in a manger. Right? So he did this, and now when we speak or think of Jesus as a human being, sometimes we try to abstract the form of Jesus 
from the actual forma, from the actual human form, and we say, yes, he was God in the flesh. But have we asked ourselves, what does that mean? What it meant for Jesus to be God in the flesh? Did he have a body, like a human body, like that of Adam before the fall? Or did he have a human body like yours and mine? We know something for sure. Jesus did not have a sinful nature. We know that as a matter of fact for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was God himself. He didn't have a sinful nature. His, his nature is, is pure righteousness. That is the nature of God. So we know Jesus did not have a sinful nature. But the question remains, did he have a, a human nature like yours and mine? Or did he have a human nature like that of Adam before the fall? The scripture gives us evidence that his human nature was like ours, not like Adam before the fall. He got sick. He, he felt sadness. When he got the news that Lazarus died, and then when he saw Martha and, and Mary coming at his feet, like, Lord, if you had only been here like yesterday, my brother Lazarus was to be here with us. And Jesus failed the sadness. He knew that Lazarus was going to come back from the dead, and yet he couldn't help himself by crying. Because he loved Lazarus so much, and he loved Mary and Martha. So Jesus also felt anxiety and depression. He also felt unbelief. When he was at the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, on, on that Thursday night before his crucifixion, on, on a Friday, and he asked his disciples to pray with him because he, he couldn't help himself. He was so anxious. Jesus started sweating blood of the anxiety that he had because he knew the pain that he was going to suffer. You know, and we may consider today that to be cruel, right? Because we think of ourselves more humane. So when, when we do have capital punishment, well, we try to make that humane even for the people who have been condemned to, to capital punishment. But Jesus knew exactly what was ahead of him. And that caused him anxiety and fear and unbelief in the sense that, Father, if it is possible, please let this cup get away from me. But not my will, Lord, by your will. So with this experience of Jesus, he's teaching us a couple of things. He's teaching us that he was a human being just like you and I. He could have died, and he did die. We know that Adam before the fall couldn't have died. We know that Adam before the fall, he had a perfect human body. He didn't have any physiological or biological or chemical reactions in his brains causing him to be depressed. He didn't have an enlarged amygdala for him to be anxious. But Jesus did. Because he had our human form that you and I have. And yet he was sinless. No sinful nature in him. And so with this perspective as to what Jesus is, then we can compare ourselves to Jesus and try to come up with a definition of what it means to be human and what lies at the core of the human condition and what it means to be born again in Christ as well. Let's read Psalms 8, 4 to 6. King David tells us in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 4, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor, and you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. 
And we also read in Genesis 1.26, as Caleb read last week, and God said, let us, man, let us make men in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So from these verses and from the experience of Jesus, we can extract some attributes of the identity or ontology or what the essence of the human being is. So first and foremost, a human being, whether it's born again or not born again, carries the image of God. All human beings are precious because we carry the image of God. And sometimes we have asked ourselves, well, what does it mean to have the image of God? And some people have thought that maybe it is self-awareness, that human beings are the only species on earth that are self-aware because God is self-aware. Humans have the capacity to choose between good and evil, have the capacity to reason, have the capacity to have free will, to have emotions, to love, to feel empathy and for other fellow human beings and for the creation as a whole. And, and we, we can see this. You know, I, I have friends who are non-believers, and they are involved in organizations that serve the needy. They help the widows, the orphans. They clothe the marginalized people all over the world. They're engaged in human development, economic development. And these people are so smart. And when I asked them, why are you doing this when you could be working at an investment bank? Why are you working for human development and economic development in poor areas? And these people are not believers. They're in Africa, Southeast Asia, and they fail because it's my mission and I love helping people. I love seeing the results of my work when people have a better quality of life. And I, I, I believe this is true because the image of, even though they're not believers, the image of God, it's in them. And a human being is also capable of evil, but at the same time capable of good. Even if that good does not come from the Spirit, if it comes from their own human flesh, that's still the remnants of the image of God in humanity. Human beings have the authority and dominion and are stewards of the whole of creation. And also we know that we were made a little lower than the angels. And generally, generally speaking, human beings are fallen, we are fallen, and generally speaking, humans have a sinful nature. But the good news is they are redeemable. We are redeemable. And Jesus did not come to help the angels, but to, ha- but to help human beings. Right? And that is, that's another question that I always had. It's like, God, just like King David, what is man? Why not the angels? When Lucifer sinned and rebelled in heaven and he took a third of the angels with him, why did Jesus come to redeem us, those people who he created in the garden and not the angels that rebel with Satan. Why do we have that they don't have? And the Bible tells us that he did not come to redeem the angels, but to redeem us, because we are made according to the likeness and the image of Jesus. Does that imply that the angels are not? Probably. I really don't know, but that's my deduction. So, having said that, now let's move to our new identity in Christ. Now, we just describe the attributes or the properties of what the human condition is without Christ. But then what it, what it means to be with Christ. In, 
in my walk with God, when I was growing up, I always saw myself as, I was a child, and, and I always saw myself as a sinner. And every night when I go to sleep, I would accept Jesus in my heart because I was afraid that I was going to die in my sleep and go to hell. And then when I grew up and, and uh, I started asking questions to my dad, he's like, Dad, you know, I, I was open with him. He's like, I'm afraid that I'm going to go to hell. Uh, I, don't, I don't feel assured of my salvation. And he said, like, son, you're right. You know, you are a sinner, but at the same time, you have been justified. You are righteous. And that was my identity since I was 12 years old till maybe recently, till I was 25, 26. I'm 37, by the way, is point of reference. <laughs> yeah, not 26. Recently, it's the last couple, few years, 10 years maybe. Righteous and sin. Oh, and, and Gracia, by the way, she, she threw a Latin term. She's not going to be the only one. I'm going to throw you a Latin phrase. <laughs> Martin Luther called this simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously just or righteous and, sin at, and sinner at the same time. And that was, yeah, fancy for Martin Luther, right? Because he spoke German. What would he say in Latin? I don't know. See, I'm, totally, I'm telling you, everyone wants to be Latino, even Martin Luther. And there were no Latinos back then in the 16th century. But anyways, so just or righteous and sinner at the same time. That was my identity for the longest time because that's what I heard. And that's what I felt, first and foremost. That, I said, yes, this makes sense. This accommodates to my feelings or to my observation of my own experience. Yes, I believe that I'm righteous by faith, but my experience tells me that I'm a sinner. I don't know the mysteries of God, but I believe that, he's righteous, that He calls me righteous, but my experience tells me I am a sinner. I cannot reconcile, but I believe that. Until I started reading the Word of God. In the Apostle Paul, in his letters to the Romans, to the Colossians, to the Galatians, he tells us differently. He tells us that our sinful nature has been crucified with Jesus at the cross. And I, when I, I ask this, it's like, I, I don't get it. Because I don't feel like it. I don't feel like my sinful nature has been crucified with Jesus at the, at the cross because I still feel temptations. And, and the worst thing is that I conflated my sinful nature with my human nature. So when I would read through the book of Romans, I, I would scratch my head because I was just like, Father, you know I'm so stubborn and I'm really annoying. And my wife could attest to this. He's like... When I have a question, it's like, I don't let it go until I find an answer. And Father, if it is really a mystery and it's only for you to know this, then so be it. But I don't believe it is for you to keep this because I don't think the Apostle Paul is it's telling us this so you know the answer. You're the only one who knows the answer. I actually believe that the Apostle Paul is trying to go out of his way to tell us exactly what it is to be born again. But it was so really hard to understand because we in the Western civilization, we have been embedded with a lot of these Greek uh, terms and, and Greek uh, philosophies, for example, of the essence of humans. And when you read Plato or Aristotle, 
when they speak of essence, it's, it's unchanging, it's unmovable, it's, it's eternal, and there is no uh, concessions, there is no compromise on the, what, on the essence of things or in the essence of humans. And all, and all things and all humans and all animals only have one essence. And that was my mental model, that was my framework, my paradigm, when I would read the scriptures. Until I asked God, God, remove any context, any previous knowledge, any framework of thought that I have inherited or that I have captured through my life. Remove that and just teach me directly from your word of what it means to have my sinful nature crucified at the cross. So we read verses like, for example, Galatians 6, 14, 15, where it says, as for me, I may never, this is Apostle Paul speaking, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in, in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. And this, and this transformation is trans, to be transformed, not to be reformed. It's not for your human nature to be reformed here on earth. It's for your sinful nature to be dead and for your righteous nature to be born. That is a transformation of the gospel. Also, in Colossians 2, 11, 12, the Apostle Paul says, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, that of cutting away your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were raised to a new life, because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so I was faced with a conundrum. Do I, do I believe my framework of thought, my Greek paradigm, my Western paradigm, or do I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying right here? Because someone is wrong, or the Apostle Paul is wrong, or my Greek paradigm that Western civilization has given me is wrong. And I said, Father, I just, I'm going to trust you fully. Just unclothe me from any prior knowledge or any prior framework and teach me your word. And then God took me to the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, is different, this book is different from the other letters of Paul. As we read from Colossians and, and, and Galatians, when, when Paul would, would talk about having his sinful nature being crucified at the cross, it was in a context of telling the people that they didn't have to sin anymore, that they didn't have to go back to the law. Because even if these people were Gentiles, the Apostle Paul was really angry that some Jews who were converted were going to these Greek cities and they were preaching the circumcision. They were preaching the law, that it was not enough for the cross, that these people, these Gentiles, in order to be saved, also had to be circumcised. And so Paul got really angry. And he said, no, that circumcision is not in the physical body. It's in the circumcision of the sinful uh, nature. And that was the context in Colossians and Galatians. But the context in Romans, it's different. For the first time, Paul is making a case. He's writing the book of Romans as if he's writing an academic paper, as if he's writing an essay. He starts in chapter 1, introducing himself. And then he says, I represent the gospel. And in the gospel, 
Jesus, who was crucified, he was born out of a woman. And in the human nature, he comes from, from the line of King David. But he's the son of God because of the resurrection. And then he moves on. And the second, the second part of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Gentiles of the world, the unbeliever Gentile. And he's making a case as to why they need Jesus. And he says, you Gentiles do not have an excuse because even though you don't have the law and you probably have never heard of Yahweh, when you look at nature, when you look at God's creation, the logos of Christ is present throughout creation. And you have no excuse because creation has convicted your conscience of what good and evil is. And yet you have turned to idolatry. You have turned to immorality. Therefore, you have sinned and have no excuse. Your punishment is death. And then in chapter 2, he moves to the Jew. And he says, but you, Jew, you have no excuse either. Why are you uh, accusing the Gentile of sin if you yourself are sinful too? And even worse, God gave you the law and you have broke it. You boast yourself to be circumcised, but the the outward manifestation of the circumcision is the fulfillment of the law, and you don't follow the law. This is hypocrisy. Therefore, you, Jew, also need Jesus, because Jesus came to rescue Gentile and Jew. Chapter 3, the Apostle Paul moves to the universality of sin, and he says, because no one is righteous, no one has done what is good, all have fallen short, and all of them have sinned. Therefore, the law cannot redeem you. There is no redemption in the law. And therefore, now, apart from the law, righteousness has been manifested to the world by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And this is justification through faith. Righteousness revealed apart from the law. And you have to understand that in the Jewish mind, this was impossible. There was no righteousness apart from the law. So the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, he's continuing to make his case. And now he is saying, let me tell you why it is possible for righteousness to exist apart from the law. Remember your father Abraham, of whom you boast to descend from? Well, before the law, before Moses, he was declared righteous by God because God gave him a promise and he believed in, God, in that promise. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness apart from the law. And Abraham was not circumcised yet. So Paul is making his case. And so now with Jesus, who is the promise of Abraham, as we read in Galatians 3.16 to 26, this is our inheritance as we believers. So when we have a new nature in Christ, this is our inheritance and this is our righteousness, a righteousness that we inherited from the work of Jesus. And in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul moves to explain the original sin. Probably you have heard about the doctrine of original sin because he's continuing to make his case what everybody needs Jesus because through Adam, sin came to the world. Through one man, the many were considered sinners. And this is what St. Augustine called original sin. And this is what the Apostle Paul calls the sinful nature. We inherited our sinful nature through Adam. But through another man, namely Jesus Christ, 
righteousness also came to the world. So the many can be considered righteous. So Paul is making a contrast. Through Adam, sinful nature came to this world, and the many were considered sinners. And through Jesus Christ, righteousness came to the world, and the many were considered righteous by simple faith. And then Paul ends chapter 5 stating the following. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. So the purpose of the law was to be a mirror. So when you look at yourself in the mirror or in the law, you say, wow, this is so holy and I cannot fulfill it. How sinful of me. And, and, to, and to portray your sinful nature back to you, that was the purpose of the law. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is the end of chapter seven, six, 5. Chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it starts. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Of course not, says the Apostle Paul. But Paul, but you're telling me that where there was more sin, the more sin, the more grace. So can I conclude that I can sin more and have therefore more grace? And Paul is saying, by no means. By no means. Because it is a transformation. You, once your, sin, your sinful nature is crucified, you are transformed. And God forgave all your past sins. And He transformed you into a new creation. So by no means, where there, where there was more sin, there was more grace. But shall we continue on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Since we have died to sin, verse 2, how can we continue on living in it? Or have you forgotten that when we, when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we may also live new lives. Verse 5. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to new life as He was, because we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives, and we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. And we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. When He died, He died once to break the power of sin. But now that He lives, He lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. So, and then I continue on reading this. And for example, I, I went down to verse 19 in the same chapter, Romans 6, verse 19. Okay? So the Apostle Paul is telling us, he's using analogies. So he's saying, this is what happened. Your sinful nature was crucified with Jesus at the cross. And when you believe, that's what happened. And when Jesus resurrected, you resurrected with him to a new nature. So my sinful nature was crucified. And the, and the question is, then what is my new nature? My new nature is that of Christ, that of righteousness. 
And the Apostle Paul also is giving us an analogy. He's saying, therefore, you're no longer a slave to sin, but consider yourself a slave to righteousness. This language is a language that the people understood at the time, the language of slavery and master. And so Paul, in verse 19, he's telling us, because of your weakness, because of your human nature, I am using this illustration, this analogy of slavery, to help you understand all this. And, and then I scratched my head when I read this because I'm, I'm, I'm asking, Paul, what do you mean when we resurrect like the body of the Christ who was resurrected or the body of Adam before the fall? The, the Apostle Paul says, this is our hope. This is what we're looking forward to. Yes, I believe by faith that I am righteous. I believe by faith that I'm a new creation. But I still feel anxious. I still feel depressed. I still feel unbelief. I still feel like desperation sometimes. I'm getting sick. I'm getting diabetes. Why did I get cancer? It's because my human flesh hasn't been redeemed yet. It's, it's longing. It's waiting for the day of the children of God to be manifested. But my sense, my true essence of who I am in Christ, that already was redeemed because my sinful nature was crucified at the cross. But that power hasn't been manifested in my human body yet until the day of resurrection. So to conclude, let's read Romans 8.31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us, how will not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised back to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray as the worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, because you're always faithful, Father. And we humble ourselves before you, Father, because we don't know the mysteries of the world. We recognize our own human limits. Our minds are so limited that cannot grasp, not even remotely, what the universe looks like, Lord. We can just imagine, Father. Thank you, Father, because in our limited language, you have chosen to manifest yourself and take our human form you limited yourself. You left your crown and your throne to be like us, to be tempted like us in every single way, to be tested, to feel nakedness, to feel famine, 
to feel anxiety, to feel depression, Lord. I cannot thank you enough. We cannot thank you enough for your love because at the end of the day, what is humans, what is mankind that you loved us that much that you didn't even think of your own life as being worth saving so, we, so ours could be saved as well, Lord. I ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, Father, that you give us um, a spirit of humility, Father, and greater conviction in the Holy Spirit of what our true identity in Christ is, Father. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.